Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Talking about quite an alarming report uh, that you've got your little mitts on there, Keith, quite exclusively, might I add, through your your association with the Club of Rome, it's yep. an elite little crew that just get together <laughs> from around the world and discuss big issues. Uh, it's looking at the future of the world and whether it's actually feasible that we will save this planet from climate change and other things. Keith, give us the headlines. Right, yeah. Well, my approach to life is that we know what we should do, but I'm very pessimistic that we're going to do it. And this report really supports that. So this is a report which um, give you the full title. It's available free of charge off the Club of Rome website called Transformation is Feasible, How to Achieve Sustainable Development Goals Within Planetary Boundaries. So in other words, the idea that the planet now has boundaries, right? That's quite a new idea in its own uh, respect because we always assumed the planet was full of limitless resources that we could go on exploiting the planet indefinitely. We're now beginning to realise that there are boundaries and that we, if we're not careful, we will run up against those boundaries. You know, people talk about the fact we've only got one Earth and yet our rate of consumption suggests that we actually have access to a total of three Earths because the amount of resources that we're using. So what this report, which is a report to the Club of Rome, is seeking to do, and I was there for the launching that we had it for the the Club of Rome meeting in Rome last year. What we're looking at in this report is the way in which in 2015 we get two major developments. One is that the United Nations agrees on what are called sustainable development goals and at the same time in Paris we get a conference on climate change and what's got to be done to solve climate change. This report tries to bring those two separate documents together. You know, part of the problem of modern government is that it's very departmentalised. So you have one group of people who talk about climate change, another group who talk about sustainable development, and those two groups don't speak to each other, either at international conferences or in national capitals like Canberra or Washington, D.C. So what this report is, is looking at is, well, going ahead with current trends... What are the scenarios about where we could actually head with these four trends? So they're doing scenario planning. Let me just say that you basically got three ways of thinking about the future. One is prediction. So you and I predicted we're going to be here today. You've got people who predict the outcome of sporting events, etc. So that's prediction. Second way of thinking about the future is having a preferred vision and then working towards that vision. And that's quite often the basis of a lot of political discussion, that often the politicians will speak from what they would like to see happen. Even though you ask them a straightforward question, they will give a spin saying, this is what I would like to see happen, right? That's having the vision. A third way of thinking about the future is scenario thinking. In other words, not what is currently being predicted, not what you necessarily like to see happen, but what could happen. So it encourages you to think about the unthinkable, and it gets you out of your comfort zone. Politicians don't like being out of their comfort zone. And they also, of course, don't like thinking long-term because as far as they're concerned, they've got an election in two years' time or three years, four years, etc. That's as far as their horizon extends. So when you're talking about um, Agenda 2030, for example, so we're looking at 12 years away, no mainstream politician does that except parts of China, perhaps. They, they can do long-term thinking because they don't bother with elections. 
or at least they're not really elections as you and I would call them. Um, and indeed, in this report, they actually talk about the China model, which is to think long term. Because the problem is that in a democracy, as we have in the so-called weird world in which you and I live, <laughs> there's Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic, right? So that's Western Europe and the UK, United States, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. That's the weird world. We're very much now in a small minority of the total global population. Um, but we have real problems thinking long term because our electoral system is so destined to always be focused on the immediate issue and the media, of course. And, of course, when you say that as well, it just makes perfect sense that they would look down on us. As you say, the Chinese look down, look down on countries like America and us and the Britain because they think we're decrepit in organising yeah. our country and our affairs. Absolutely. They must look at, at Trump shutting down the US government and just scratch their heads. How can you do that with your own country? Put so many of your own public servants onto unpaid leave. So they'd be saying that this is just a crazy way to run a government. But, that you know, we call it a democracy. It's funny when you talk about the sustainability element of this because uh, Australian media, for example, doesn't really like to tell a lot of those stories. A lot of commercial um, television networks don't like to tell the story of, of climate change and sustainability because they don't think it rates very well. Yeah. And also because you do have so many... It's, it's still seen, oddly enough, as contentious. Yes, absolutely. It just strikes me as bizarre, Keith. Well, the reason that it's seen as contentious, just to deal with this, is the role of the media is not to tell the truth. It's to provide two sides to an argument. And so um, we, we provide one argument about climate change, you've got other people denying it, because we provide both sides. In reality, 97% of scientists have agreed that climate change is induced by humans, right? But the problem is that the way the media operate, people are not getting a good idea. So quite often you speak to someone in the street and they say, well, the scientists disagree on climate change. Why should you expect me to agree with their consensus when they themselves are not in agreement? And yet we know 97% of scientists are agreed on this. So that's it. let me just say it's an immediate reaction that I have when people say, oh, well, you know, we don't agree with climate change. We don't believe. It's not a matter of belief. It is happening. It is happening. It's fact. So let me get back to the earlier issue that you've raised, which is an another interesting one, which is the fact the media don't comment on climate change. And I think that that will happen. That change will occur as the environment gets worse. In other words, my view generally in life is that you don't think your way through to a new way of living. You live your way through to a new way of thinking. Now, from a person with an educationalist background like mine, that's heresy, right? Because I'm saying, in effect, you can't educate people to be smarter. It's experience that encourages people to think differently. And so as we get more and more stories in Australia, for example... Bushfires is a big Bushfires, one. absolutely. That's a good hook for it. Like it you is. go, well, we're getting drier, you know, there's more fodder on the floor. And we've got to move uh, animals further north to get the water, etc. Higher temperatures, yeah. yeah. So they are there. In political science terms, we have what's called incrementalism, which means that change occurs in very small steps and in increments. And that's, I think, what we will have with climate change. Instead of one dramatic flooding of Sydney, say, low-lying low areas of Sydney, we will end up with more and more stories from people saying, look, there's something really odd happening with the weather. For me, the big change, the beginning of this process, was insurance companies. Insurance companies are saying we're paying out more and more money for weather-related damage. There is something odd happening with the weather. 
there may well be that some parts of the world, like Florida or northern Queensland, will become uninsurable because of the irregular weather patterns. So it'll be sort of creeping up on people. So it's already hit the insurance industry. You don't come across climate deniers in the insurance industry because they can say, we can see from our own figures something odd is happening. And I think that this will simply occur elsewhere. Same with farmers. You know, I look at or go to a lot of farming conferences and there you've got people who are themselves saying, yes, something is odd happening with the weather. We're having to bring in fodder from the other side of the country to feed the animals, etc. So there is something odd happening with the weather patterns that are farmers are now much more willing to accept there is a problem with climate change. So in this report, Jürgen Randers and his colleagues have produced four scenarios on how the world could evolve by the year 2050. So we look at the sustainable development goals that are 2030, but they've taken that to, to 2050. And they've come up with four scenarios. One is just simply business as usual. Where are we at the moment? And if we continue to go along with what we're doing, and of course, the ending is not good by 2050. So by the time your children are getting well into their adulthood, etc., the world is going to be in a terrible mess. The second scenario is the belief that somehow if we can accelerate economic growth, then we can solve all our problems. So we've just got to work harder at producing more economic growth and then somehow we will pay for all this environmental damage. A third scenario is to say, well, economic growth is good, but let's work harder on a number of other developments as well. So that's the third scenario, economic growth, but also let's get more involvement generally on this issue. And the fourth one is what uh, they talk about working smarter. For that to happen, we need to halve carbon emissions every decade from 2020. Right? So if you're a major coal exporter like Australia, we've got 600 years supply of good quality coal. Are you joking? 600 Still? years, absolutely. Yeah, but all right. Well, but we're not going to be able to sell them for the next 600 years. Mm-mm. Even though it's good quality coal, Mm-mm. we won't be able to sell it. And everyone else is changing their ways, right? Even China's changing absolutely. their ways. Absolutely. So you've got rapid renewable energy growth. The second one is accelerated productivity in food chains. So that means we have to work out how we can change our eating habits, maybe perhaps making greater use of vegetarian food because producing meat is actually very intensive cultivation, right? Another one is you have more development models. And, Keith, uh, cows fart a lot. Yeah, quite. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Is that your way of saying that? That, Well, that's a way of saying it, yeah. (laughs) You have new development models in the poorer countries. So, in other words, encourage them to follow the model of China, Scandinavia. Now, this is heresy because, remember, we have what's called the Washington Consensus, which is Washington, D.C., the U.S. government and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, all within a few blocks of each other, right? The Washington Consensus is rely on the market. The market will solve your problems. And yet here you've got a scenario which doesn't endorse the American model but endorses China and Scandinavia, That's going to be a challenge as well. And then another uh, one, active inequality reduction. In other words, making sure that the richest 10% take no more than 40% of income. Uh, So it means obviously increasing taxation on the very rich and making sure that we give more money to poorer people. And then finally, investment in education for all. Gender equality, health, 
family planning. Obviously, there are some parts of the United States are trying to ban family planning. So investment in education, gender equality, health, family planning. In other words, stabilising the world's population. Stop having 50 kids. Exactly. But how many countries are actually doing that anymore anyway, by the way? Having lots of children. Mm. Well, certainly still in Africa. Africa will have more people by the end of the century than China or India. China, of course, has taken very drastic measures, very controversial measures, the one-child policy, and now, of course, they're actually running out of young people. They've already run out of young girls because parents, if they have a baby... Uh, if it's a girl, they just simply throw the girl down the village well or dispose of the, of the child, the baby, and the baby is never registered, so the baby never existed. So you've got uh, families that have boys because boys bring girls into the family. So the, the, the uh, daughter-in-law will look after you in your old age. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why car sales are so big now in China. So in the United States, only 10% of cars that are sold are sold to new American customers. So the, the market is basically saturated. In China, 90% of cars go to people who've never owned a car before. So why do Chinese buy cars? Because they want to give it to their son so he can attract a better type of girlfriend. Uh-huh. Seriously? So you're buying a car as part of your superannuation policy, so to speak, because your son will then marry a good girl Bring her into the family and she'll look after you in your old age, Kate. Unbelievable. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about how to save the world from destruction, Keith, today um, through this new report um, that you you got your little mitts on exclusively made for the Club of Rome, you and your little elite friends over there that travel. Oh, but anybody else can get them. You can uh, download it. Stop being so insulting. Of course, but it's because <laughs> you're, you're a part of the club. That's right. I am part of the club. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, so we're just talking the headlines through this, and this is quite dire. It says that, you know, the world will be in a very, very bad position by the time well, my kids are eight, six, and two. So, yeah. you know, by 50 feet, no, by 2050. 20, mm, yeah. And there's a few ways in which they're saying that we can get resurrect this. That's right. So, the ways that they're looking, just to refresh our memory, new ways of doing energy, new ways of growing food, new development models. Don't follow the American pattern, follow China or Scandinavia. Also, to reduce the wealth within society. Let's just go back on that for a second. What do you mean, Scandinavia and China? Why are they? But, you know, great examples. Well, they have government involvement within the economy. Scandinavia, of course, is a free society. So you're talking about Norway or Finland, Denmark and Sweden. They are freer societies, but they still have a high degree of government intervention. An obvious one, for example, is that education is free, which is another one of the proposals in this document. So the education is free. Why? Because in those countries, you have what's called a high social wage. Basically, you have a choice between either giving people more money, in other words, you have a low rate of tax and you have more money, cash, so to speak, going into your pockets, or you charge a high rate of taxation and use that money to fund welfare programs. So the United States, under President Eisenhower, who's a Republican president, highest marginal tax rate of 87 cents in the dollar. It's incredible to think back to that. The same in Great Britain, of course. And these countries also introduced death duties. So when you died, um, your estate was charged for a certain amount of money. 
when you died. Australia is the only country in the world, developed country, which doesn't have death duties. That was abolished 30 years ago in Australia. Not even President Bush could abolish death duties in the United States. It's interesting. So we've actually gone down the American path further than the Americans have gone, if you like. So you have, therefore, this economic revolution that begins in the late 70s. We call it the New Right Economic Revolution, uh, market liberalisation, etc. We're basically reducing government involvement in the economy. And President Reagan in the United States, Mrs Thatcher in Great Britain, Labor governments in Australia and New Zealand all reduced the high level of taxation or put more money in your pocket. Now, the risk with that is that you get private wealth and public squalor. In other words, that you could end up with, sure, richer yourself, but lacking some of the social facilities like roads, infrastructure, etc. And that's the downside of that approach. So what this report is saying, well, perhaps we should go back to where we were, which is a high rate of taxation, but then also a high rate of delivery of welfare services, free education, for example. But then how would that work with every country not being socialist? I think what we're looking at is having to move towards some degree of socialism rather than just relying so-called on a free market. Although it's interesting, you know, if you think of socialism as a country which uh, doesn't have too much by way of civil liberties, and you always think of China in that regard, but look at how we've changed also in this country. We have reduced human rights in this country now. You've got to be careful what you say. This is the political correctness issue. Those of us who teach American students have got to be careful what's called microaggression. So if I'm going to say anything that's going to be unpleasant... I have to warn the students, oh, this bit, this is going to be a bit unpleasant. Oh, really? This is microaggression. So it is very interesting how you've got thought control that is seeping in. So when people say, oh, well, we've got a free society in the West, I'm not sure that we have. I think that changes have taken place now in the West, so there is far more control. Well, like, for example, all the use of identity cards now, the um, anti-terrorism legislation and the you know, flying through an airport nowadays. So we are becoming more of a police society, but we're not also introducing the socialist economic policies that China and Scandinavia have retained. But I can't see that a lot of the countries, like for America, for example, who have scaremongered on leftist politics for so mm. many decades could ever go down that, that path. Well, I don't know. I think the narrative is changing. If you go back to where we were two years ago, um, the Democrats had two possible candidates for the presidential election, one of which is a socialist, mm. right, Senator Sanders. Bernie of, Sanders. Bernie Sanders of Vermont. And the toe cutters around Mrs Clinton protected her nomination and prevented Bernie Sanders. I think he could have won that election in 2016. But it's interesting that the children, so to speak, of Bernie Sanders are now doing so well, like... Um, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uh, from New York. Mm. You know, she took on a long-time Democrat candidate who'd held that lower house seat in New York for years and years, very much part of that Clinton camp. She took that person on and beat him, which meant that in the general election, the Republican candidate was invisible pretty well because they knew they weren't going to win because it's such a Democrat seat. So the real issue was that Democratic primary and that's where Ocasio-Cortez was such an upset candidate, young and female, 
and talking about extremely left-wing policies. So I think the narrative can begin to change. For me, that's one of the joys of the American political system, that it enables so much variety in a comparatively short amount of time. Elizabeth Warren is also interested in running. Now, she's not as left as Bernie Sanders. And a bit older as well. And a bit older. So, yeah, there are age issues or whatever. But it seems to me that the, the Democrat Party is responding now to the so-called 1% movement, you know, the, the the campaign that was waged with the sit-in at so-called Wall Street, which is actually around the corner from Wall Street because of anti-terror measures. You can't actually have a demonstration in Wall Street now. So the, the 1% movement, the 99% movement, focused on the high level of wealth going to a small number of people living in the United States. That helped to change, if you like, the narrative in American politics over the last few years. Sanders tapped into that, but obviously was denied that chance because Mrs Clinton had people in the party machine to safeguard her interests. And by the way, where does Mrs Clinton get a lot of her money from? From the financial institutions. What a coincidence. (laughs) Funny about that. Funny about that. So what we see then is, I think, a groundswell of people who are saying, we've got to be doing something different. Now, whether or not this full scenario is going to work, of course, is another matter. It may well be that we would just be business as usual and we will end up creating chaos, but at least we have a vision for getting out of this current dilemma and looking at how we can save the earth. Mm. Good points. So are we stuffed or are we, you know, based on this report we've been talking about, stuffed or are we going to find our way? Well, with scenarios, you don't make predictions. They just simply put the four in front of people. It's how we respond to those four scenarios. But we do have an escape route here, providing we're willing to make use of it. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.